before we get started, guys, just want to warn you, this episode, we get a little dark, and it could be depressing. In the last episode, Chris Edwards, who's the founder of The Third Floor, talks a lot about persistence. He basically created or helped to create an industry out of, you know, where, where nothing existed before. Built that industry up into what it is now through, oh, it almost seems like sheer will. Mm-hmm. That that kind of blows my mind. You kind of did the same thing with this company. What was your experience building up a business from the beginning mm. and pushing through to where you are now? Okay, really good question. So I just want to clarify something. I don't think Chris Edwards created Previz. Previz was already an industry long before he joined that part of the business. And it existed in different forms. I think he just elevated it to the next level. The previs that I was used to seeing was kind of like what it sounds like. It's rough, uh, grayscale models moving around like stick figures blocked out. And we're not talking about the dynamic moves that we're seeing today. And I think it, it goes in parallel with how many CG films are made today with visual effects. I think movies of the past, there was limited camera movement. They were kind of very aware of what you could and couldn't do. So they weren't as daring with what they would try to achieve on the film, on the screen. So for example, we knew that if you got anywhere close to seeing a person, it had to be a real shot because you're going to be able to call that out. You can even see in the Matrix when there's uh, the Matrix 2 when there's this big fight scene between Neo and, and Agent Smith. When Agent Smiths are like running into the courtyard fighting Neo and he's spinning around, they look CG, they look a little rubbery. And you can totally see that. So as the technology of what could be done from a finishing point of view got better and better, I think that meant the director and his collaborators could explore all kinds of ideas. So what Chris did in the very beginning was using his experience at ILM was to be able to make really nuanced space animations because they were at the forefront of CG technology because it was kind of it began there because they had the confidence that they could make anything they were basically the world's or the industry's VFX company almost all the big films were being done at ILM at that time mm-hmm. and so I think I just wanted to clarify that so he was just at the right place at the right time as many people who wind up becoming leaders or pioneers in an industry. Just there's a I think there's work and, and there's some luck involved that in that. Now relating it back to me and my own company, we were just early in. And if I'm being totally honest, I wasn't thinking about it like, oh, we're pioneering something. This is super risky or um just, you know, that fortune favors the bold. I wasn't really thinking like that. I was just thinking, this is fun. I'd like to do this, and since I'm a life learner, I like to take on things that I can see 5, 10, 15, 20 years of growth. And I, at that time, even though I had just graduated from Art Center, print design already started to bore me a, l- a little bit in that I knew how to move type around on a page to make it look good, to make it interesting, to make it read, and to do what my instructors had just taught me to do quite well. So I felt like the runway on the creativity was going to, I was going to hit a wall pretty soon. And at that time, we're talking about 1995 here, David Carson, who was like the king of print design, was already doing all these crazy experiments. Some of it worked, some of it didn't. 
And I was thinking, okay, there's all these postmodern designers who are exploring that kind of design, but it's going to run its cycle too. So what was left? This emerging field that then later became known as motion design. At that time, it wasn't even a term as far as I know. I could see that it was going to be a melting pot of a lot of different disciplines, cross-discipline, cross, I think it's called cross, or transdiscipline, where you're going to bring in cinematography, editing, visual effects, animation, graphic design, and all these different principles, and you're going to smash it into one thing. Now, you could spend a lifetime learning each one of those disciplines. The fact that motion design was at the nexus of all these different things coming together felt really cool to me. It felt that I had so much to learn. I could be that kid in a candy store and feel that sense of newness all the time. And it was that way for many years, probably for over a decade, where as soon as we thought we hit one peak, it was just the beginning of the next jaunt up to the next peak. And every time we got to what we thought was the top, there was yet another peak to get to. Okay, so when you get to what you think is the top and you see that other peak... You seem like the kind of person who is ready to, ready to take that on every time, who's ready to run up the hill. Is, is there a point where you get where you sort of start to wear out hill after hill after hill? And how do you keep yourself going up that next hill every time? Just speaking as a creative person, I think new challenges, doing new things, finding new ways of solving a problem, that's exhilarating to me. It's also very scary. We always talk about it when we're taking on a complex or challenging job, a 30-second commercial that's that's utilizing a trick or technique that we've never done before. Not never done in the world, just we haven't done it. And you kind of hit that crux where you know you're either going to solve it or you're going to crash and burn. And it's horrible kind of up into that moment, but we always figure it out. It's that feeling. And then you feel like from here on out, it's like ball bearings and going downhill. And it's amazing. And we we kind of toil and torment ourselves in those moments. And then you have a breakthrough. And the breakthroughs are some kind of creative high that you can't get any other way. And so we're living for that moment, living for that challenge. Now, if it wound up that we were doing the same thing over and over again, let's just say we did a lot of 2D character animation that was in the style of South Park, for example. And we're doing commercial after commercial or episode after episode, that would bore me. And then I would feel like, you know, I'm kind of done. I think that's where we would probably have to evolve into producing our own content or reimagining the animation as a app that's interactive, a game or something, or maybe move into licensing or something totally different because doing that same thing on repetition is is boring. Within that repetition, though, to a certain extent, that's how you build a business. So in the t- in the time period between A and B, which is the beginning, A is the, let's say A is the beginning and B is the ne- when you take off on that next step. How do you build persistence both in you and your business to push through that repetition? Okay, I think I'm going to rewind the tape here in my mind a little bit and say the first year we were just happy to do any kind of commercial work. And the kind of work that we got was to work on TV commercials that had lots of typography moving on the screen. And typically this would be for car commercials, uh, 
specifically regional car commercials where they would say 299 down for 36 months, 1.7 APR or something like that. There was a lot of type on the screen. And that gave us an opportunity to really think of new ways to move typography. And we would do that and we kept doing that and we would try new tricks or new typeset combinations or as After Effects added a new feature, we would try to exploit that each and every time. And while we're doing that, we're gaining expertise. We're learning about how to set up the camera, how to play around with the motion curve so that each time the animation was getting better and better. Or we think of a, a trick or something in our mind, like, I wonder if that would work. And so I would pitch that to the very next client. If they approved it, we would do it. So after you get tired of animating things on the computer, we started to think about, well, let's shoot the titles optically. And so we met um, one of the premier guys who did that. His name is Dan Coney with Stokes Coney, and he was in Hollywood. He would shoot the topography for us on 35 millimeter, 35 millimeter film. And then we got to explore a whole new world, and this is all in-camera optical typography where we would print out the type on what they call the codolith, which is a transparency with super black uh, opaque areas, and then the letter forms were totally transparent, and we would shine up all kinds of lights behind it and run filters between the lens and the typography and create these beautiful organic aberrations and chromatic things that were happening. It was really cool. And that's how the type animated. And instead of animating it via keyframes, we're animating it physically in camera and capturing it. And then we would go back into the edit bay and cut these parts together, pick a frame out here or there, and stitch it together. And, and then I started to, to learn that really animation is just a bunch of static frames and it's an illusion to the eye. It's not the smooth thing that we perceive it to be when we're watching it. So we would try tricks where we would insert maybe every fifth frame a little jump cut and then the type would pulse. Or we would show the type scaling back smoothly and then just snap cut to something where it lands in place and it would create this really strong impact. Now those are the things that we weren't thinking about when we're animating via keyframes because you don't think, let me make this really smooth and let's just cut that and then do something totally different. And that's where we started to have fun. But each time, you know, we would go deeper and then feel like, okay, we're getting bored. What other materials can we use? Can we set the type on fire? Can we freeze it? Can we throw dirt on it? Can we scratch it out frame by frame? Can we, what can we, what else can we do? And we would do that. And if the client just wanted the same thing over and over, I got bored of it pretty quickly. Then I would bring in designers and animators, just have them do the work and make money and just explain to everybody, guys, we're just here to make money. Let's do a good job. But I'm kind of over this. And so then we started to look, what else can we do? Can we incorporate now 3D typography? So go back to the machine. Can we include, can we include some character animation or can we include some live action footage? So we're going to mix the two worlds together. And so this would keep evolving. So we started out doing animated title cards for car commercials, paid well, not horribly creative, but utilized a lot of our skills, all the way to now where we're directing live action film. When I say film, it's all digital today, but live action film and sometimes almost no typography or any visual effects work. So it's run the entire gamut. And that's been a very interesting arc for us. And then that ultimately becomes boring because you can be a visual stylist, which is essentially what we are. The agency comes up with a script 
and we pitch on it. We pitch treatments like how do we interpret your idea? But then that's disconnected from who's ultimately going to see it and what kind of impact it's going to have on them. This is why we've in the last couple of years have embarked on this idea of doing brand strategy. Now, what we're able to do is work with the client directly versus an agency and intermediate and understand what their business goals are. What are their marketing goals? What are their conversion goals? And work with them. And in this way, sometimes we come to the conclusion that they're not best served by a 30-second video. Maybe it's a 74-second explainer thing that happens and it's a combination of still graphics and animated things that can live online on their website or all and also on social media. Maybe it's coming up with a game plan where you do a 10-minute piece of content and it's designed to be broken down into, say, 20 pieces of content. So you can break it all down. And so you can think of it like that. Or sometimes there's no moving parts at all and it's designing a space. Now that's going to take us on our next arc and I think we're going to enjoy that arc for some time. And I can I can see it now already evolving until we reach a certain point where where if we get really good at what we do, business owners will call us up and say, you know, I have a problem. It's not a design problem. I have a business problem. I'd love to pick your brain. I want to get your creativity. It could just be about how do we run our operation more efficiently or how do we change the culture in the company so it's efficient, innovative, and it's a happy place for people who want to express themselves. That could be totally different. So solving problems, personal growth, and doing things that I think challenge me are the things that keep me going. This is kind of a random question based off of that, but is there any favorite story that you have of basically bringing the client along for the ride? You know, you get to a point where you're, you've done this thing for so long, now you want to move on to the next thing, but you have to convince them that that's what they need. Is there Has there been any specific time in the life of Blind that you were really proud of being able to convince a client to, to come along for the ride, so to speak, and also of the product that that produced? Okay, a couple of things. That's a really loaded question, so I like it. <laughs> Let me dissect some of that. Now, for people who are listening, I think their ears are going to perk up at this point when you say, how do you convince clients to do the things that they're not ready to do with you or they're not ready to do themselves? First, I'd like to remove the word convince. Convince sounds to me like you're persuading, controlling, and somewhat manipulating the client to do something that they're not, that's not in their best interest, it's in your interest. And I've spoken about this, I've written articles about this. I don't believe you can convince anybody to do anything. What I like to do is to build trust between you and your client to act as a fiduciary for them, to act in their best interest and think about what might serve them the best, regardless if there's any benefit for you or not. When you do that, there's no more convincing because then the clients call you up and say, I got this another thing and I don't know if you're the right person to talk to, but I love talking to you. What do you think about that? And I do have examples of that. So I'm going to point to two examples right now. Okay, so I can't emphasize enough for all the creative people that are out there and for all the entrepreneurs who may be listening, this is a relationship built up on trust where it's not really about what I want to do. It's what you want to do and I want to help you get there. And sometimes 
what you want isn't what you need. And we have to clarify that. Okay, and I don't mean that as some kind of euphemism for saying, well, you said you want a three uh, second, or I'm sorry, a three spot campaign. But what you need is this killer virtual reality experience because I've been jonesing to do it. That is self-serving and that's what I'm talking about at all. But if we retrace the steps and say, well, why do you feel like you want or need a three-spot campaign? Then we get into it and we find out that somewhere in the user journey, something is broken because it's not connecting to a result that they want. That's where we step in and say, you want this result, but you're prescribing this action and it's not the correct action according to everything you've said. Do you see that? And then they say, yes, if you're listening, it's because they're telling you the story, they're telling you the pain point and the challenges, and you're helping them to surface that and to connect these dots, so to speak. All right, so if you're able to build up trust, then now they're going to come at you and ask you for all kinds of things. So the example here that I've given before is when we worked on the Trojan storage project with uh, Brett Henry, who's the one of the uh, owners and operators, he started asking me things about properties he was purchasing and telling me about them. Not that he wanted my opinion on if it's a sound financial investment. He knew that part really well. But he was asking me to take a look at the buildings and saying they kind of look very residential. What they did was they acquired spaces run by small and mom, mom and pop operations. And inherently, usually the owners, operators live on the premises. So it kind of looks like a a hybrid between a commercial space and a residential space, like an apartment. And so he wanted to strip that away and he wanted it to look professional. So he invited us to design exterior facades for his buildings. And that is something that's not in our wheelhouse at all. It was not an issue for him at all. And so when I started to think, you know, am I stepping into space that I'm not qualified to do? He reassured me and said, you know, I'll hire an architect. I already have architects I can work with. I like your vision. I like the speed in which you work. I like the customer service that I'm getting from you. I like your thinking. So you design it. I don't have them make it. So in essence, I got to take a shortcut from doing something that I love to do, which is dream up, up interior and architectural spaces without having to go to training. I didn't have to go to school for it. I didn't have to intern I didn't have to pay my dues, quote unquote. I just got a shortcut. And the shortcut was because it was built up of trust, built up from trust. And we were able to do that. So that's one example. Here's another example right now. It's like one of our clients who's a big commercial real estate developer, multi-billion dollar company. I just recently had a conversation with them and I had asked them, you know, you're doing wayfinding, signage for your properties. Uh, if you think we're appropriate, I would just love to take a crack at it because it's something I'm interested in doing. And like, sure, we'll introduce you to the team. And that's not something that we do. That's not something we have deep expertise in. But again, it's built up from trust. Because I thought it's kind of strange that we would develop the marketing identity for their spaces and then to leave that on the floor and somebody else comes in and does the entire body of work again from scratch. It's a lot of waste. And why don't we kind of keep the experience consistent? This is akin to when you go and watch uh, a movie trailer or you see a movie poster and there's a beautiful logo and then the logo that you see on screen is a totally different logo. Mm-hmm. Why is that? 
It's because there's a marketing company who makes the movie posters and a different company that produces the main title sequence. They have two different expertise kind of verticals and sometimes they cross over, but often they do not. So I was like, that's a disjointed user experience. Either I hated the movie poster logo or more likely I hated the logo that was used in the film. So that's how I think you're able to take the client along for the journey and you're going along it with them. And that only comes from deep respect, empathy, and ultimately trust. And it sounds like one of the things that you might suggest to people is if there's something that you want to do, seek out a way that you can do it potentially for free for somebody so that you can get the experience in and say, like, just just let me do this and then use that as a jumping off point to bring in other people. Yeah, I think that's a viable approach, which is to build up expertise, either doing spec project on your own or doing it for somebody else for little to no money. And I think that's the approach I would have taken myself five years ago. Mm -hmm. That's not the approach I would take today. Something I've realized along the way is this. I used to believe that we sold creative services, that we sold graphic design services, or we sold motion design work. I thought that's what we sold. But I've come to realize that the, the things that we make are a byproduct of our thinking. What I'm selling is the thinking, and if I'm going a little deeper here, and I don't want to get too crazy for our audience, what I'm actually selling is assurance. I'm going to assure you that we're going to take care of you, that we're going to treat you with respect, that we're going to be great listeners, and we're going to try to understand the problem. And to be upfront and honest, to think or to say to you, if we don't feel like we can adequately solve this problem, we're going to recommend somebody else other than us. I've done this before. There was a giant job for one of our clients in the video game space, and we worked really hard to convince the client. And this time, I did use convince, the word, being very deliberate here. And they said, okay, you guys can do it. But And this is a, a project that was probably the six hundred dollars to $700,000 range. It was a big deal job. It was a big deal for them and their client. It would have been a big deal for us. But when they got deeper and deeper into the objectives, the parameters, the timeline, and the deliverables that we had to hit, I realized I'm going to jeopardize the relationship and potentially not deliver our best work for them, knowing what's on the line. And then I told them, you know what? Thank you for giving us the opportunity. Thank you for allowing us even to be a part of this conversation. But I think having heard everything, you are better off working with a bigger team at this point in time. Mm -hmm. And they did do that. They thanked us. They were going to give us a job. They said, this is your last chance to say no. Otherwise, we're going to give you the job. We turned it down. Fast forward, I think we're two and a half years out from that. We're still doing work with them. And literally, our executive producer, Scott, walked into the room today and said, hey, we just got a call from the client. They have another job somewhere in the neighborhood of $300,000. And now we're our, we are their go-to guys to do this kind of work, the work that we turned down two and a half years ago because mm -hmm. I want to do this right. I only want to accept a job if we feel to our mutual satisfaction that we both will benefit, not just for me. So yeah. that's how you go there. Yeah. All right, so... I would like to say it now, if you want to do something you've never done before, ask yourself why you want to do this and who 
interests are you serving, first of all? Now, just so I don't sound hypocritical, I was thinking, you know, I'd like to do some signage design. I'm not the expert at that, not even close, right? I've done some of it before in the past. You can find companies who sole vertical is just to do signage design. But I thought, you know what? I know an expert that does this, and I have a client that needs this already. I'm not trying to tell them do something that they aren't already doing. I just want to say, give us a shot. Give us a look at it. If we can't be competitive, we can't come up with great ideas for you and make the process easier for you, then we shouldn't be here. And we'll gladly bow out of it. And this is all I can ask for. It's like, would you consider us for this? And so then this is about being smart about how to ask, going for the ask. So for me, it was about establishing a relationship, consistently delivering over the last year and a half with them, and slowly expanding our relationship with them, not trying to take on so much at the beginning. One thing that I hate is somebody who I've never met, and this happens, they call me out of the blue and ask for something really big from me. And we don't have a relationship. I have nothing. So people off the internet are going to ask me, Chris, can you review my entire website? It's like, you know, I don't have that kind of time. I'd like to, but I can't. And if that's our first point of contact, that's a poor time for me to ask or for you to ask. So realize, just kind of to make this clear, realize one is you're not selling creative services or products you're selling a relationship and your ability to deliver and don't take that lightly if you're in over your head be honest about it and tell them be honest with yourself first of all and be honest with the client i'm not sure where the best fit but if you know that going in the client's like you know what i don't care we'll figure it out with you that's how you build trust and that's how you're able to do other kinds of things. So, so then what I like to do is I just like to meet lots of people who are exploring things on the fringe, so to speak. So we know people who are in the virtual reality space, augmented reality, mixed reality space. That's pretty cool. We know people who used to do some pretty killer 3D stereoscopic work where they were doing 3D immersive environments. And so we meet all these kinds of people, specialists, people who do particle simulations, people who do character animation or something else. So I meet all these people and they're kind of on the fringe of what it is that we do so that if and when a client comes to us with a problem and I can hear that there's a problem, I can say, you know what? I know who to call to help out on this. So what I've become is a resource. And on one of our videos when we talked about pricing design, I said, you guys sell what you do. I sell what the world can do. And I really, I really meant that, that. I know this sounded really sensational, but that's what I mean. My job is to learn about what other people are doing all the time. Because the more dots I have, the more opportunities I have to connect those dots. Before we get into some heavy stuff, here's a word from John Roth. hey John Roth here from the future. I'm here to tell you guys about the pro membership. A lot of you have been asking about how you can engage with us and where you can go to meet like-minded individuals. Well, I'm here to tell you how. For $75 a month with the Pro Membership, you can join Chris Doe's collective of creative entrepreneurs, which includes everyone from designers to strategists to writers and more from all over the world. Also included is over 40 hours of exclusive videos on a variety of topics, from the business of design to project management, and access to two pro calls a month 
where you can have your questions answered by Chris live. All that and more in your pro membership for just $75 a month. Not afraid of commitment? Sign up for a year and save $150. The pro membership, exclusively in the online store. Go to thefuture.com slash shop for more. One of the things that Chris says is 99 knows one yes. And that's what really clicked with me because I have a story that I, I might want to share with you here. But one of the things that I would like to know and I think the audience would like to know is how do you get through the 25th no or the 62nd no or the you know, the 89th no? It's like, how do you keep going to get that one yes? A student asked me this question many years ago when I was speaking at Santa Monica College. He said, you know, how do you stay focused? Because I feel like I want to give up. I've hit too many roadblocks in, in my pursuit of this career, this creative life. And I said something probably not in the best way, but the sentiment is this, is that you have to question your own resolve. I was going to tell this story about desperate measures, but I messed it up, so I have to do a pickup here. All right, in the movie Desperate Measures, starring Michael Keaton and Andy Garcia, where Michael Keaton plays a deranged psychopath. He turns to Andy Garcia, who's a cop and a father trying to save his son, and he says, are you willing to test my resolve, my willingness to go the limit? You want to find out where you stop and I begin? That's persistence. And I said to that young person, I said, you know, maybe design isn't for you and it's not for everybody. Not everybody's entitled to have a creative career just because they decided to have one. Just relating back to my own life, when I was um, in college, prior to getting into Art Center, I hit a couple of roadblocks and some emotional low points for sure. And at that point in time, it looked like the path to Art Center was kind of closing down around me. It was an expensive school. I had not finished my portfolio. My parents no longer supported me pursuing it. My relationship with my brother and his then-girlfriend was just completely disintegrating right before my eyes. The path to that place, that goal that I wanted to get to, was like one, and the 99 other paths led to no, do something else with your life. I had to do that gut check and go deep inside myself and say, what is it that I want? Even if everybody in the world tells me no, how bad do I want this thing? And I think part of my motivation was I was just an angry I'm not a teenager. I guess I was still a teenager. Uh, 19 counts, I guess. I was 18 or 19. And I was just angry. I just wanted to prove them wrong. I wanted to prove them, prove to them that I had talent. I had focus. I had drive. And I had the will to make this thing happen. So I resolved it within myself that night, that kind of dark night of the soul, if you will. I said to myself, if I have to work and get loans, take every other semester, take every two semesters off. If it took me eight, nine, ten years to get through this school, I was going to do it. I didn't need support. I'd crash at somebody's house. I don't care if I lived out of my car. I was determined to do it. And when that moment happened, something clicked in my brain. I cut out all the BS in my life. I cut out all the distractions, the wasting of my time, the procrastination. I have focused on my portfolio like I had never focused on it before. 
I knew then and there that I was going to be a complete failure or I was going to succeed. There was no middle ground. It went real binary for me at that moment. And then that's my only way to relate to somebody who's thinking about this, who's thinking, well, they're 99 no's. Maybe I shouldn't start. What if they say no? What if people say I'm not good enough? Well, that's only a setback. If you quit, then that's the outcome. That's the conclusion. Yeah. But that's just the determination you have to have if you want to pursue that that creative life that you want to have. You can't take no. And none of this was about money, about fame, about power. It was just about, I wanted this for myself, and that's the best reason to want something. Are you still thinking about your idea? Like, um, what do you want to do? What do I want to do? You personally, yeah. Is this going to segue into something I, that you have an idea to do? Well, I, uh, I, I had been thinking about this over the weekend, yeah. about how this conversation might go, and you know, there's, there's, there was, a, there's a story that I could share, um, and. Uh, I feel like I, I feel like you kind of I feel like you kind of covered it. <laughs> Why don't you share the, the story? Thing, if, but, if it doesn't um, work, then we'll edit it out. Yeah, I want to know. You're like so mysterious now. <laughs> um, in 2010, I uh, managed to convince my parents to loan me some money so I could make a make a feature film. And somehow I got it into my mind that I could do this for $10,000. And so they loaned me $10,000. And I wrote a script. I figured out how to get the story that I needed together. I was living out here in Los Angeles at the time, but we were going to shoot it in Phoenix, Arizona, because I had some friends who lived out there and we had access to things for free out there and the whole story was around this area that they lived in and the people and it was all pointed towards that so we got this thing together and went out there summer june 2010 it's 114 degrees during the day and for two and a half weeks we worked on this film me three other guys and the two lead actors and then various local actors that came and filled in parts. And it was hell. It was absolute hell. Sounded like it. It was hot enough to be. Yeah. It wasn't just the heat. It was poor planning and not enough money and disputes with people and locations dropping out, actors dropping out. Basically everything, everything Every, that could go wrong went wrong. Yeah, Murphy's yeah. law. It, it, yeah, Murphy's law. Yeah. It was a, it was a kitchen sink kind of situation. I remember driving back from it. It was me in my car, packed full of stuff that I was bringing back, equipment that we had rented, and one of the lead actors. And I was ready to be done. I mean, I was ready to quit. And he gave me this massive pep talk on the way back home. And 
We drove till late into the night to get back to L.A. I dropped him off. And the coming months and years were extremely difficult. I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here and be really personal. So I hope the audience is not. No, you got to go there, man. Yeah. Two months afterwards, I had nightmares every single night. My anxiety was through the roof. I had difficulty at work. If a door slammed too hard, I was jumping. Um, it, it literally, it, I mean, I hate to, I hate you to PTSD. Yeah. I was, I was about to say like, I hate to like oversell this, but it was literally, literally like having PTSD. And wait, 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 before you get into all that stuff, I think you skipped over all the horrible stuff. <laughs> you really did. You kind of set the scene about it being really hot and everything falling apart. But if you don't mind, share a little bit of your personal struggles, the self doubt that was going on during the shoot, because I am now starting to relate to what you're saying. I just want to feel some of your pain for a little bit. You know, part of it was that one of the lead actors had a very different idea of who the character was that they were playing was supposed to be. It was written very clearly in the script, but they felt like it should be a different kind of person. So your lead was, was, had a different vision than what you had. So you're battling that the whole time. Yeah, there was constant... constant squabbles about that and that led into that individual doing everything they could to knock me down and knock everything else down that we were doing there was fights not many but there were a few fights between me and certain members of the crew that felt like they were either not getting enough to do or had too much to do or things like that this is like the production nightmare that film schools or film students have about how it might play out and it played out in real time for you yes and yes let me just say this because i i'm feeling what you're saying and it feels like the whole thing is crumbling around you and your own personal motivation to keep going is is dwindling by the moment because you're saying yeah. this is not the movie i set out to make i borrowed this money from my parents and I don't know what I'm going to have at the end of this thing. It's not feeling great. It's almost like every episode of Project Greenlight that I've ever watched. <laughs> right? If you have, if you guys don't yeah. know about that series that's produced by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, go check it out. They purposely, I think, throw first-time filmmakers into the Hollywood system. And it's just a beautiful, slow-moving car accident. Because <laughs> they're idealists. And they have big ideas and the budget doesn't match and instead of being grateful for the opportunity they look at it like I'm going to change everything and then you start to realize the system works for a reason and this is why none of the films that were made as far as I know were any kind of commercial success at all I think now they produce the series just as entertainment value for the conflict Mm -hmm. so I think they purposely pick headstrong young naive borderline arrogant filmmakers to throw them into the system just so we can watch it happen. Yeah. And I can tell you right now, naivety was at a peak for me. I mean, I I will overwhelmingly admit that, like, I was unbelievably naive going into this and made probably every mistake that you could make.
Okay, so now you're feeling totally dejected. Momentum was with you, but now you're feeling probably like you're held hostage by your own budget. Like you can't fire the guy because you're in Phoenix now. How are you going to get a replacement? You have no yeah. money to do a reshoot. So he knows that. I'm assuming so he, he knows that. And so he's going to do what he wants to do. And he's sitting there very selfishly thinking about his own reel and the movie he wants, not realizing that it's not going to come together if he doesn't play along. So just to relate it back to the thing that we talked about before, if you think of it as you were the client, the director, the producer, the financier, and you're, he, you're the client and he was the vendor. The actor was going to give you a service for reduced fees, but that was a part of the trade, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm going to do what you want. And then he came in with an agenda and he was trying to convince you the whole time it should be something totally different. Not in your best interest, but in his best interest. And he ruined the entire experience for everybody. So now we can see. I've never thought about it that way. That puts a whole new light on it. See, so this is the thing that I I say, you know, if you want to be a great creative person, you have to have two key ingredients. One is empathy and two is imagination. Sadly, those are in short supply when it comes to creative people. I find that a lot of creative people, I don't care what industry you're in, if you're an editor, filmmaker, a motion graphics person, a graphic designer, logo artist, whatever, is you're really in it for yourself. You make what you want to make and you hope that the world pays you handsomely for what it is that you do. And when clients come to you and they want something different, you feel like you're doing them a favor and they're ruining the project. That sounds like a pretty entitled person. You have zero empathy for the other person. And until you understand what it's like to be a client when you're spending good money to execute a vision, right or wrong, it's your right to make those decisions because you're spending the money. Now, you have to go back to your parents and say, look, it didn't work. I'm sorry, I'll repay you. But this grand plan of mine, it didn't play out the way I wanted. Think about the CEO going back to the board of directors saying, you know, that product launch that was going to turn around the financial uh, woes of this company, financial fortunes, it was ruined because some design firm decided they wanted to do this other thing. And now we can't even run that campaign because it hits the wrong audience and it doesn't deliver on the values that we promise. I'm sorry. CEO gets sacked, stock plummets, designer blissfully unaware, doesn't even care, completely indifferent to the situation. So that's what your actor did to you. This is where I think the lesson learned here is get a casting director, make sure you share a vision. And this is a lesson for both sides of the fence, whether you're a vendor or a client, to have a meeting of the minds. This is where we excel as a company and where I excel personally as an individual because I want to understand what it is you're trying to do and only after that do I decide if we're a good fit for you or not. Yeah, I have to act in your best interest and that's it. So there's skills to be learned from both sides in terms of determining if the vendor is good for you and if the client is good for you on the other side. People automatically assume that if you get a phone call from a client, the word must be yes out of your mouth, regardless of budget, scope, fit, vision, whatever it is. And it should be the opposite. Blair N. talks about this all the time. He said, you should try to kill the engagement three times within the first few minutes of the conversation. What he's talking about is you only then determine if it's a good fit if you try to say we're not a good fit. Then they will try to then work with you to see if it is a good fit. 
It's the opposite mentality. Mm-hmm. And it sounds crazy. We all need clients. We got to pay the bills. Yet Blair, and then subsequently via me, is telling you, try to kill the engagement three times. That forces you to determine if it's a good fit versus coming at it needy. We'll take on anything regardless if it's a good fit for us or not. Yeah. So let's let's put a ribbon or a button on the story here. You're back in LA. You're having some form of PTSD. With all due respect to people in the military, this is the artist PTSD. We're not trying to equate a creative thing, but you're having nightmares. You're shell shocked the whole bit. And did you get the film done? Was it what you wanted ultimately? The first eight months afterwards, I did not touch it. It sat on the hard drives. I struggled a lot emotionally. Did you question your ability as a storyteller or your future career as a filmmaker? Yeah. I I didn't know. That was all up for grabs now. Yeah. From one really bad experience. I I literally, I, I will go so far as to say, again, this may be too personal, but I will go so far as to say I considered ending my own life uh, a couple of times. Um, I considered throwing the hard drive of the footage into the ocean. I mean, we're in Los Angeles, you know, we're right next door to the ocean, might as well, you know. Um, There's a lot of ocean to throw it into. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I didn't partially because... <laughs> I didn't want to throw a piece of electronics into the ocean. Oh, your, your last <laughs> dying thoughts is like, don't do further harm. To yeah, the yeah. It's like Toxic, this, it's bad diet. enough, right? Right. right. Um, so there was a lot of there was a lot going on there. Eventually, a friend stepped in and said, "Give me a chance to see if I can shape this into something." And he took the hard drives, and we spent. You know, knowing the fact that both of us had full-time jobs, he has a family with children, stuff like that. We spent a couple of years working on seeing if we could shape it into something that would be worthwhile. We got really close to something that me and him and the cinematographer, all three of us felt, you know, positive about. It was not what we set out to make. But it was something that all three of us felt like was something that was interesting. But because of some technical issues that we did not realize at the time, you know, during shooting, ultimately I had to retire the whole project and basically just shelve it. It would have cost more to fix those technical issues than the film ever would have been worth. So it would cost more to fix it than to reshoot the whole thing. Honestly, like you probably could reshoot the whole thing for cheaper, you know, in in the end. Just one of the issues was the sound for reasons which are still unclear to me. um, This friend who started and continued the edit for most of the most that period did not sync the sound, which is something that you would initially do from the very beginning. And when we got to the point where we went to go sync the sound, we realized that most of it was just trash, which meant we would have had to re-record tons of stuff. We wouldn't have been able to get most of the original people that were in it because 
we were in Tennessee at the time. They were in Arizona or in Los Angeles. Some people, mainly that one actor, would not have been willing to do it. There's a lot of issues going on that would have just the dollar amount was adding up. And some of it was even like, would it, would we even could you even throw enough money at it to, to make it work? It did eventually just get shelved. Jeff Nichols, who is a great director, he did Midnight Special, Mud, Shotgun Stories, and a couple of other films. One of the things he said recently was, if you do something and it doesn't work, put it on the shelf and go do the next thing. And that was, I think that was really like sort of the final push that I needed to let go of it was hearing someone who... I both respect and admire saying that if it doesn't work out, put it on the shelf, walk away, go do the next thing. So I got this question to ask you. I, I hate to go to the dark place. But I think most creative people can relate to this feeling that it's art or death. And you're sitting there, you're, you're torturing yourself over this thing, right? If all the decisions, the whatever. What ultimately, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you got over it because otherwise I wouldn't have this person to talk to who's working on these projects who are helping to shape the direction of where we're going as a company. So thank, thank goodness you're still here. But what was your salvation? What was the thing that got you through the darkest parts, if you don't mind sharing? It was film. There's a lot. I think that there's a lot to be said of a lot of times when people lose their way, when they love art or sports or whatever, the advice people always give them is go back to what got you there in the first place. Go back to that and, and work on rediscovering it. And it took me years and years and years, but I rediscovered that at some point in time. I went back and watched a lot of the stuff that got me into this in the first place. It's also friends and it's family and it's, you know, it's, it's faith in something bigger than yourself. But a lot of it was just going back to that well of this is the thing that brought me to life. When I was 14 years old and I didn't really have a direction in my life, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And my mom took me to the theater that was down the street from our house. And I went to go see Forrest Gump, which to a lot of people is the most ridiculous movie that could ever make somebody love movies. But she took me to see this movie and she actually didn't even stay. She just dropped me off. And I wanted to go because everybody at school was talking about this movie. So she took me, she dropped me off. I'm sitting there in the theater with maybe two or three other people in there. And all this stuff is happening and it's, it's getting to me. It's getting to me emotionally. And this is the first time that I'm realizing that movies and in turn art can actually like give you something more than just entertainment. You know, it's more than just Terminator blowing stuff up, you know, big action movie kind of stuff. Like 
these things can draw out the feelings inside of you that you didn't even know that you had. They can help you to connect with things. And Roger Ebert calls, he says, movies are an empathy machine. It it helps build your understanding of humanity. Uh, And I think all art is, to some extent, can be like that, depending on, you know, what you connect with. But the thing that got me through it was reconnecting with that, reconnecting with the things that got me into all this in the first place and move, you know, just moving on from there and realizing that the, the ideas are still coming. The ideas haven't stopped. There's still more scripts in my mind and they're still getting written down on pages, you know, and I have to keep moving forward because if I give that up, then I really have nothing. Hey, thanks for sharing that. And I, I, I see that there's still some kind of emotion that's under the surface. I look into your eyes and it's just like, I, I feel it. I definitely feel it. And it's still maybe a little tender. And I find it fascinating that the thing that is going to kill you is the thing that saves you. That your desire to, to make this film, to reflect back on the medium that has given you so much, and you not being able to articulate that was soul-crushing for you. That's the thing about art and creativity that some people will never understand is you're a really passionate person, and that passion is what makes you have that unique voice and that drive. But when it doesn't go right, when it goes horribly wrong, it could be also that thing that sucks your life away. I'm glad you found your way back, and I'm hoping that we'll continue to hear more stories from you and that this platform that we've created will allow for that to happen. So thanks for doing this and thanks for sharing. And maybe on another episode, we can really go to the dark place when you're ready to just let it go, I think. Because I saw your eyes get a little glassy here and I just want to give you space. I'm not saying that this is like a a soul-purging confessional booth. It can be if we want it to be, but I'd, I'd like to go deeper with you. Now, while you're talking about this, and maybe a way for me to say something so that People are listening to this in the car. If you're running on a treadmill somewhere, that you're like, oh my God, I feel that. I'm going to jump out the window myself. (laughs) Let me see if I can tell you a story and give you something that's actionable to turn the grief, the depression, and all the other emotions you must have felt into something that makes your life more positive. So I think it was about a year and a half ago. I had this idea. It was one of these big ideas. I was thinking, you know what? I love topography. I love design. I'm good at teaching it. I've done so in school. I've done so with my friends. I've trained lots of people who've come through the halls here at Blind on how to make better type, how to design with typography or type. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to launch a topography course. And I pulled the people at the office and said, what do you want? How much would you pay? And of course, these are all kind of mini disciples anyways. They worked here either as an intern, former student of mine, something. So they already knew what it is that I was going to offer them. So they saw it as being very valuable. And they had great pride in what it is. I think they had more pride in me than I had in myself. So like, it can only be this many classes for this long and it should be this expensive. And that was shorter than I thought, more expensive than I thought. And so I was like, hmm, let me meet people halfway. Let me make the class a little bit longer a little bit more affordable, so I put it out there. 
thinking, here it comes. There's going to be this, the floodgates are going to open up and everybody's going to sign up for this class. And when I created the class, I think I got like four people out of 50 people to sign up. So that was a big kind of reality check there. It really was. And I walked away thinking, I'm going to cancel the class. It's not going to happen because I'm not going to teach four people. My time is worth more. And luckily for me, I mean, we all have that person in our life, hopefully, that can just help to reframe the situation. So I went away thinking, boy, that sucked. That totally sucked. I went home and told my wife, and she just laughed at me. (laughs) This is the beauty of my wife, you know. She just laughed at me. She's like, honey, I know you're really good at type. Everybody that knows you from school and from our kind of professional life knows that, that they would pay double the price that you're asking for. But here's the thing. The world doesn't know that about you. You know, you've been doing motion design, and that's light on type. And then you start doing these shows where you talk about the business of design. You're talking about bidding, changing your mindset, confidence, those kinds of things. People still don't know you for typography. So that was just like um, a reality check and reframing. So I was like, you know what? You're right. So this is where you need to transfer the energy of negativity into self-doubt, self-loathing, self-pity. Those kinds of negative energy into something positive and just say, you know what? You're right. I have to take responsibility for what has happened and I have to do something about it. So I slowly started to produce videos about design and topography, about art direction. And you can see that when I produce those videos, people are like, huh, with like an eyebrow raise? Like, I didn't know that guy could do that. Because we assume when we see people on YouTube, they're all pretenders. That they're doing YouTube because they got nothing else to do. That they want to be personalities, they want to be famous. And maybe that's the case, but that wasn't the case for me. I wanted to teach. I wanted to help people. I wanted to help people in all aspects. So I started to produce content around that, thinking that someday I'm going to be ready to return to make my film or my topography class the way I wanted. So I thought, okay, the big class didn't happen. Maybe I should take smaller steps towards getting there. So I sat down in one afternoon. I wrote the 10 rules of topography my typography manual, and I turned it into a PDF. There were typos. I used some wrong terms. I just needed to get that thing out. And people that are type nuts, type aficionados, would call me out and say, you know, it's, uh, that's um, a typeface, not a font. <laughs> and they would correct me on all kinds of things. And I had friends do proofreading for me. But ultimately, I released it on SlideShare, and I posted it to our site. And it turned out to be the highest view page on our site by far but it still didn't catch on. So I was thinking, what else can I do with this thing? Okay, I contacted somebody that I knew through the internet and said, you know, I'd like to pay you to animate this thing for me. And his name is Leo from Red Cat, and he's like, you know, I'll do it. I'll charge you a couple thousand bucks for it. I was like, ah, it's a lot of money. I don't want to pay. That's like a computer. I should just find an intern to do this. But then I thought, you know what? I don't have capacity for it. And he's a professional. Let him do it. So the great thing is he did it. He took him not a week that he thought it was going to take. It took him a month and a half. And he said, you don't have to pay me. I don't want to be paid. This is one of the most inspirational projects I've ever worked on. 
he would do animations and he would show it to me and then I would mark it up and talk about it and send it back to him. And then finally we finished this thing. I got Adam Sanborn, who is the musical director for this show, to score something beautiful, amazing. So we released this thing on YouTube and I thought, you know, Facebook, let me just post it on Facebook. Our audience is not really on Facebook. And at that time, I think we had like 500 page likes on the Futures Facebook page. Mm-hmm. And that video goes bananas on Facebook, not on YouTube. We're getting hundreds of thousands of views. It's really close to being a viral hit. And we see that our audience grows by quadruple, by five times. It just grows and this thing is being shared and people are talking about it. This is a good thing. Yeah. So the 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 one thing that I can peel away from this is that one you it's good to have big dreams but start small take iterative steps towards what you want but always keep your eye on the prize and when one format or medium doesn't work don't let that be the end of what it is that you do try it a different way try short form try 30 second versions of your movie try animated versions try anything just do it in voiceover with stick figures if it's a good story people will still love it Mm-hmm. There's lots of ways around this. And I think oftentimes when you're limited by budget and resources, that could be the most fertile ground for creativity. It forces you to be inventive. I think that's why many first-time directors who create a hit movie have a hard time repeating it. Like take, for example, the Wachowskis or M. Night Shyamalan, where the first movie done on a shoestring budget when they're new was their best movie. And they struggle to get back there because now they have resources. They don't have limitations anymore. Mm-hmm. And then they go bananas. So that need to invent is gone. So yeah. think about it and let the let the idea mutate and be transformed into different mediums. So my type course turned into a few videos, turned into a PDF that turned into an animation, which then will lead me back to Guess what? A type book and now a type course. Now, our fans on the internet are clamoring for this book. Like, we'll pay, pay, please get it done. We'll help you do it. What do you need? What resources? And let's make it happen. So this goes back into that, that determination I was talking about. I'm determined for that to be successful, but I'm not committed to the form in which it takes. And that might be the key takeaway. Hey, guys, thanks for tuning in and listening to our stories here. I'm Chris. I'm Stuart. And thanks for tuning in. The Future is hosted by me, Chris Doe. The show is edited by Stuart Schuster. Big thanks to Adam Sanborn, who composed our theme song. To subscribe to The Future Podcast, check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and now SoundCloud. Make sure you rate and review our episodes. Don't miss out on upcoming events, live streams, workshops, and announcements by going to thefuture.com and sign up for the newsletter link at the bottom. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Future Is Here. Thanks for listening. That's it for this episode. See you in the future.